so thankful for a church with so many gifts, and that when we gather for worship, there's the weight of the gospel. Um, it's not fast food Christianity where we're bipping in and bipping out, doing our Christian thing, but we have to think about what's being said. We have to use our minds to glorify God. We have to be engaged with our hearts, our emotions. Very thankful for this church family and the way God has gifted us and the way he uh, allows us to worship in uh, the depth of the gospel week after week. If you would stand and reverence the reading of God's perfect word, 1 Samuel chapter 9. We continue our study through the book of 1 Samuel. We are leading to the king we need or being led to the king we need. Uh, we're going to look at chapter 9 today. I'm going to read uh, just verse 3 to begin our time together. Hear the word of Christ. 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 3. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise and go look for the donkeys. Oh God, we thank you for the truth and reality that there are folks here today who have come looking for donkeys and yet they will find Jesus. And God, I pray that that's our heart. Whatever we're searching for, whatever we're longing for, whatever our heart's desire is in these moments that is uh, captivating our thoughts and our feelings, our emotions, our wills, whatever we're living for, whatever we're searching for, whatever we're looking for, God, you, you would do a great work in our hearts and our minds. And despite what we want, you would give us what we need, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I reached down to grab my phone where I thought I had left it the night before when I was falling asleep. And I realized my phone wasn't where I'd put it, on the floor. Uh, for some reason that night, I'd just put it in the floor. Uh, I have a, a table next to the bed, but that night I guess I was just falling asleep and just threw it over to the side and I was getting ready to leave uh, for vacation that morning. We were headed to the beach and I reached for my phone and it wasn't there. And I began to, to, to reach for the power cord and I, I worked my hand down the power cord and I realized that the night before when I had just thrown my phone over the side of the bed, it had perfectly landed into even a small cup of water next to the bed. And it was toast. And my family, we were headed to vacation, so I really didn't care about my phone at first. I was like, that's probably God's grace in my life that I don't have to go on vacation with my phone. But then I began to think about all that was on the phone. And the week before, I'd been on a mission trip in Peru, and I began to think about all the glorious pictures, the, the most amazing mission footage that the world has ever seen. That was on my phone. I, mean, I had taken footage of our missionaries walking and hiking through the Andes Mountains with the, the, the sun in the background in some of the most beautiful places, and it was all gone. 
There was actually a video of me preaching in a small, out-in-the-middle-nowhere shack to a group of Peruvians, and, and I still had not been able to put that on Facebook. It was gone. There was a video of Eric Turner, one of our missionaries, on the side of the mountain. This was his last day in Cordova, and I had filmed him on the side of this mountain talking to a Peruvian farmer for 40 minutes about the gospel. And the guy was interacting with him, and we were, we were thinking maybe he might believe the gospel. And it was gone. That video was gone. How would anybody know that had ever happened? How would anybody ever know these great and glorious scenes on this mission trail even existed? And I had to stop myself and, and think, why is that all I'm thinking about? That, that these pictures are lost and the world has never seen my great footage, my photography skills on Instagram. Why, why is that what I'm worried about in these moments? And is that not the world we live in? Where we're beginning to believe if I don't take a picture of it, it never happened. We're beginning to think if it's not Instagram worthy, it's not worthy of doing. And it's a scary place to be in. And when we come to 1 Samuel chapter 9, we find a massive transition in Israel's history. For so long, they had been ruled by the law of God. God was their personal king. His presence was represented in the tabernacle. And God was their king. They didn't have a man as king. And then through the prophets or through the judges, they were ruled. They were given deliverers as they sinned against God and they repented. And men who delivered them from their enemies, they were considered their leaders and, and they've been given prophets to lead them. And we get to 1 Samuel chapter 9, and God is going to give them a king. They're going to have a man as a king because that's what they want. And it is one of the most massive transitions in Israel's history. And the way it happens is a farm boy goes out to look for his donkeys. Nobody was there to story it. It didn't seem very eventful. It's a guy searching through the hills of Israel looking for donkeys. And it is the most monumental moment in their history up until this point. Remember chapter 8 where Israel, they've rebelled against God over and over and over again. And they seem to repent and they seem to get their act together. They confess and they're restored to God. But the issue of sin just keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming. And their latest struggle is we want a king like the nations. We want a man to be our king. We want someone on a throne leading us into battle. We want a king like the nations. And God says, okay, I will give you a king. I'll give you a king. But there's no ceremony. There's no parade. He tells them to all go back home. Samuel says, God's going to give you a king, but go back home. Go back to business as usual. God will take care of it. And the way he gives them a king we see in this chapter is through the events of a farm boy, a country boy named Saul. And first of all, in the chapter, we see the apparent danger in appearance. Notice verse 1, there was a man of Benjamin. Now, throughout the whole book, 
we see a man, the man. There was a man. And over and over, that phrase is transitioning us to something else. There was a man in the very beginning. And we see a man in Ramah and his wife wants a child and God gives her Samuel who is a man who begins to lead Israel. There was Eli who was a man who was leading Israel. And over and over this phrase, and the point is this, there's another leader coming. Always, with every, every transition, we need another leader. We need another leader. There was a leader. There was a leader. There was a leader. And the point is, no one has been able to lead the nation like God would call them to lead the nation. There's no perfect leader. And so we get to chapter 9, and again, there was another one of the tribe of Benjamin, whose name was Kesh, son of Abel, son of Zeror, son of Bekoroth, son of Alphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And so we find this man, just a man, a Benjamite, but he's very wealthy. And notice verse 2. He had a son whose name was Saul. The word Saul means ask. Remember Samuel, what does his name mean? Asked for. Saul's name means asked. And, and Israel is asking for a king. Earlier, Hannah was asking for a son. She gets Samuel. Here, Israel's going to get a man named Saul. Notice how he's described. He was a handsome young man. He would have been voted Mr. Israel. He would have been the prom king. But there's a problem. He's a Benjamite. And Benjamites were not supposed to be the royal line. And yet, here we're beginning to see this king is going to come from the tribe of Benjamin. And there's a problem here with Saul moving toward the throne. We're supposed to immediately feel that tension in this man. Notice, there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. When you saw him, you, you, were, you were taken back. You, you, you were, man... He's a good-looking guy. He, he, and notice, from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any other people. Meaning, if you were looking in a crowd of people, you saw him, you said, wow, he's handsome. And look, he's head and shoulders above anyone else. And, and the text begins by describing the appearance. But remember, this is the appearance of the king Israel asked for. See, Saul is to be a warning for us in appearance and what things look like from the outside. This is the king Israel was longing for, a king like the nations. And, and God is setting us up here. He's going to give them their trophy king, a good-looking, handsome, striking king. And why is he going to give Saul to them as a king? To judge them, to ruin them. To, to bring them to repentance. And he warns us in the trusting in appearance. This trophy king who looked good on the billboards, looked good in the magazines. They could prop him up to all the other nations and say, look at our king. And yet they've missed God as king because they're longing for appearance. They're longing to look good among the nations. And they miss God as king. It's the same reason folks miss Jesus. 
You see, throughout history, we have begun to think that Jesus was a pert plus model. That he looked a lot like us. That he was white and had long flowing hair. But, but Isaiah tells us this. He wasn't much to look at. He was a little Jewish guy. Wasn't much to look at either. And it's the same reason when Jesus steps on the scene, this backwoods redneck from Galilee who had no place to lay his head, folks didn't look at him and say, that's the king we want. No, they said, we don't want a king like that. We're looking for a Saul king. A man of power, handsome, good-looking on his white horse coming into Jerusalem. Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a donkey. They miss him. They, they, they don't want a king like that. They don't want a king that looks like Jesus. They want a king powerful to overthrow the Romans. They're looking for someone with good stock, and yet they see Jesus, and the rumor around is, hold on, isn't his daddy Joseph? The carpenter guy? That's his stock? Oh, and by the way, have you heard the story when he was born? Yeah, they weren't married. And they said the Holy Spirit did it all. Yeah, right. He's from these peasant farmers, carpenters. How could he be king? And they missed Jesus because they were longing for appearance. And it's the reason so many missed him as he hung on the cross, a crucified Messiah. You look at Jesus on the cross, king of the Jews, being humiliated, mocked, treated like an abused dog, crucified. He lost. How could he be king? And there's a danger in thinking about Christianity only in terms of appearance. And it's the same reason some of us here today are missing Jesus. We see our Christianity as an opportunity to market our brand. That's the way many of us think about the gospel. I will embrace Jesus when it makes me look good. The Easter photo shoot. Hashtag once a year. Makes me look good. I will co-opt Jesus when it makes me look good to other people among the friends where I look good. But if Jesus begins to make me look uncool, i got to move on to something else. And for some of us here today, you have embraced Christianity to the extent it makes you look good. And beyond that, you don't want any part of it. But here's the thing, the gospel doesn't make us look good. That's not what it's designed to do. You know what the gospel does in so many of our lives so often? Is it shows us how unattractive we are. The more we know about the gospel, we know more about ourselves. And compared to Jesus, we say, I'm not very attractive. I'm not very loving, but he loves me anyway. That's the gospel, is that you have no appearance before Jesus. And the gospel doesn't give you a bunch of cool, pretty friends. Look around. That was supposed to be funny. <laughs> now, what the gospel does so often is it gives you a bunch of awkward friends. And you begin to know their struggles. And you begin to say, we're not very pretty. But guess what? We love Jesus. And we're family. 
But from appearance, you would want nothing to do with it. And if you want power when it comes to your Christianity, here's what you do. You crucify the idea of coolness. You crucify the idea of appearance. And you begin to live in light of the kingdom. You begin to live in light of the identity that Jesus has given you in the gospel. And you don't care about appearance anymore. All you care about is Jesus. Notice verse 3. We see the spectacular in the unspectacular. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, take one of the young men, a slave, a servant, and arise and go look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim. And he passed through the land of Shalashah. I just pause there. But they did not find them. And they passed through, and they passed through the land of Benjamin, and they did not find them. And when they came back to the land of Zoph, Saul said to the servant who was with him, Come, let's go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. Now we're beginning to learn some things about Saul. And one of the things that we see here is he's weak. He's weak. And he's an incompetent shepherd. He can't find the donkeys. And when the going gets tough, what does he do? Let's go back home. And he throws out this excuse. My dad's going to be really worried about us. Let's go back home. And so he searches, and this would have been a vast search, and he, and he finally gives up. And, and, and this picture of Saul is to be pitted against a picture of another coming king who's out fighting lions and bears. Little heart boy who's out tending to his father's sheep, who has found his father's sheep. But here we find an incompetent shepherd. But this is the king that will be given to Israel. But notice how, notice what God is using here to bring about his kingdom. Lost donkeys. Ordinary farmer stuff. Looking for sheep looking for cows, looking for here donkeys, ordinary, common, unspectacular stuff. And it's out in the middle of nowhere. It's not in the middle of the city. I'm going to tell you all who the king's going to be. Everybody gather in the middle of the city and let's talk about it. No, it's out in the middle of nowhere. And, and, and one of the things that social media does in our context is it reveals this desire within us to make everything awesome. We really want everything, even the unspectacular things, to be awesome. Whether we're hiking, whether we're at the beach, happy place, whether we're uh, or at the grocery store, they all have to be on the same level. This was awesome. Looking for baloney is awesome. It's all got to be awesome. And some of you are saying, oh, he's talking about social media. I'm not on social media. I don't do Facebook. That's of Satan and all that. But guess what? You do the same thing in the way you tell stories. You use a lot of superlatives. And when you talk about yourself, you want yourself to be awesome. And social media just highlights that for us. Every little picture has got to be amazing. Every plate of food is spectacular. Washing dishes with the fam is awesome. We just want that. 
And that's a desire within us to make everything amazing. And it's revealed something about us that this, if all that has meaning is the extraordinary, then how do I make sense out of such a mundane life? If all that matters in the end are the glorious things, the extraordinary things, then I'm not going to have much to look back on. Because my life is pretty mundane. And it's pretty boring. The awards, the vacations, the awesomeness. When I look back, there's not much of it. No one's writing a biography about me. So, so I have to make the simple things amazing. And, and here's what the gospel does. The, the, the gospel does that very thing for us. The desire for the significance is fulfilled when we realize God uses it all. He uses the ordinary and the extraordinary. He uses it all. We don't have to make it amazing with our superlatives. We don't have to say it's great and it's fantastic and it's awesome. Can you believe we cleaned the kitchen this week? Can you? This is amazing. Every little action shot on the baseball field, that this is amazing. Every little jump shot, every report card is the next road scholar. This is amazing. You don't have to do that. Why? Because if you're a Christian, washing dishes is amazing. And God is doing a hundred things in your heart as you wash those dishes. And God is doing a thousand things in those conversations with your kids over Captain Crunch. Things you can't tweet about. Things you can't capture and caption and take a picture of. God makes it all amazing. So that desire in your heart is met with the gospel and a sovereign God who is using it all. How do we know that? But because we know the most unlikely event in human history was used for our good. The, the crucifixion of Christ would not be allowed on the internet because it was so grotesque and violent. It's not Instagram worthy. But it's what delivers us of our sin. And, and the Roman soldiers that day, it was an insignificant event for most of them. They nailed Jesus to the cross. He died. They went home and tucked their kids into bed and went to sleep. Tourists in Jerusalem, when that happened, they went back home and said, that was a great vacation. Now, the crucifixions, they were a little much this year. And by the way, there was an eclipse while we were there. That was pretty amazing. And behind the scenes, God is, is using the crucifixion of His Son that would have been insignificant to the folks standing there to deliver us from our sin. He did the most amazing, spectacular thing on that day in the most gruesome, the most unappealing, the, mo the most grotesque event we could ever imagine, the most ugly day. He used it for our good. Notice verse 6, we see a man unqualified to be king. He said to him, Behold, there is a man. So they're looking for donkeys. They can't find them. And the servant turns to Saul and says, Hey, I think I know a man. I think he's in this city. And he's a man who is held in honor. Now I want you to notice through this section, through the whole chapter really, 
how a man is used. A man, a man. What God is communicating is there's some insignificance to this man. He's just a man. Remember, we want a man? Okay, I'm going to give you just a man to be your king. And here, they're looking for a seer. And notice, they don't even know his name. They don't, know, they don't know his name. There's just a man in the city. And notice, he's held in honor, I think. All that he says comes true. He's a, he's a fortune teller. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go, how we can find our donkeys. And then Saul said to the servant, but if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone and there's no present to give the man of God. What do we have? And the servant answered Saul and said, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Verse 9, Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well, well said, come let us go. So they went into the city where the man of God was. Now, there's a lot of irony there. They don't know who Samuel is. Samuel is a very popular prophet, and they have no idea who he is. They have no idea where he is. And, and the parenthesis in verse 9 is actually supposed to be ironic. They don't even understand the prophetic role. They're thinking seer. They're thinking fortune teller. They're thinking paganism. But, but we just want you to know, they're talk, behind the scenes, the writer is saying, oh, they're talking about Samuel. They just don't know anything about him. They don't understand who he is. And, and Saul says, finally, let's go. But notice, he doesn't even understand how it works. He, he thinks it's sorcery. We have to take him a bribe. He doesn't understand this. Verse 11, And as they went up to the hill of the city, then they met young women coming out to draw water. And they said to them, Is the seer here? And they answered, He is. Behold, he is just... Just ahead of you. Hurry! He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. And as soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes. And so they're saying, yeah, the prophet of God is here and he's about to lead and sacrifice and worship, but do not delay him because the people will not proceed without him. He's supposed to bless the sacrifice. He's supposed to lead in worship. And after those who are invited, they will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. And so they're pushing and they're rushing them along. And so they went up to the city. And as they were entering the city, they saw not a man, but Samuel coming toward them on his way to the high place. Now again, there's more irony here. They don't know who Samuel is. They enter the city and they have no idea what was going on. It, it, it would be like someone dropped at Lake Reba on, was it Wednesday or Thursday, the 4th, and saying, what is this? What are all these people here? Oh my goodness, why are they blowing things up? This is the craziest thing I've ever seen. Saul's doing the same thing. What is this high place you're talking about? What is this religious festival you're talking about? And the point is God is communicating, the man I'm giving you, he's unqualified. He doesn't know the prophet of God. He doesn't know the word of God. 
He has no idea about your worship. He doesn't understand what's going on right before his eyes. And God is taking a horrific candidate for king and he's going to use him to judge Israel. And his point is, my ways aren't your ways. You look at appearance, now I look at the heart. And you're not going to be able to figure me out if you're just looking at appearance. Because Saul, he's not qualified, but I'm about to give him the throne. Because that's what you want. He's unqualified to take the throne. The whole time we're to read this and think, Saul doesn't fit. He, he's not supposed to be in the story. And isn't that the tension in our own life? As we read our Bibles, this is an amazing, glorious story from Genesis to Revelation, and we go, I don't think I fit. I don't think I'm qualified here. And that's the point. God takes unqualified kings to judge Israel, and He takes unqualified people to show His glory by rescuing them and saving them and making them qualified in His Son and fitting them in the story by His Son. Notice verse 5. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel. Now, we would stop and say, why didn't He tell us this at the beginning of the chapter? Why didn't we understand where this was going? And it's because the writer wants us to know that this is hidden. That this is, this is supposed to seem insignificant. A guy going out to find donkeys. And he's not qualified to be king. He's not even a good shepherd. Oh yeah, he's handsome and he's tall, but, but that's not the way God does things. So what's going on here? Okay, I'll break the news to you. I told Samuel yesterday, verse 16, that tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people. Now interesting here, the word prince, it's not king. It's more like leader. But, but God's going to allow him to lead his people for a time and he shall save my people from the land of the Philistines. There will be some good to come of it for I've seen my people because of their cry. But notice the emphasis here. It's not on Saul, it's my people. My people, I will rescue my people with, with, with someone they don't even expect. Someone from the tribe of Benjamin. Verse 17. When Samuel saw Saul, Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man whom I spoke to you. It is he, notice the words here, who will restrain my people. What did he warn them in the last chapter? You're going to get a king and he's going to rule over you. And he's going to treat you like slaves. And here he is. There's going to be some good that comes of it, but it's going to be hard, it's going to be difficult, and he's going to restrain you. And, and notice here, this whole chapter only makes sense because of these verses. What's going on here doesn't make any sense except Samuel is given the Word of God. And, and imagine Samuel at the end of the last chapter. God, you're going to give them a king? They're a bunch of morons. They are the donkeys. Why would you give them a king? Why, why would you do this? Why, this, isn't a, this is not the way it should happen. A man of Kish, unqualified to be a shepherd. He's spiritually illiterate. God, can you imagine Samuel that night in his quiet time? God, why are you doing this? This doesn't make any sense. This is wrong. They're supposed to obey you. You're not supposed to obey them. And yet it all fits into God's purposes. But we don't know that apart from the Word of God. That's why it's so vital for you to be in the Word of God. That's why it's so vital for you to know the story from Genesis to Revelation. 
is for you to see where your life fits in the big story. Because some of you are just like Samuel. You're going, this is not the way this was supposed to be. I was going to be a doctor, single, in New York. And I'm selling really bad insurance. Not John Parkhurst insurance. That's really good. But this is not how I wanted my life to be. I was going to work 30 years, buy an RV, and collect shells at the beach the rest of my life. And yet I'm a widow, and I'm on a fixed income. How can this be God's story for me? And you will feel that way if you're not in the Word of God. You will feel that way if you're not seeing the glory of God in the pages of Scripture. You will wake up every morning and do the same thing over and over. You will eat the same gluten-free muffin. You will drink the same cup of coffee. You will get in the car. You will drive the same way to work. And you will sit down at the same desk. And you will type out the same emails. You will balance the same spreadsheets. You will do that over and over and over and over again. And you will say, this is all there is if you don't see it in light of the big story in God's Word. You see, it's like one of those bougie, really nice rugs that, that we throw down on our floor. And, and the top of it is amazing. Where did y'all get this? This must have cost a fortune. And you lift it up and underneath it, it's nasty and it's dirty and it's tangled and it doesn't make any sense. And, and the pattern on the top, it, it's vague and it's unclear. It's the same thing with our lives in light of the Word of God. God has already told the story, Genesis to Revelation, but we see it from the bottom. We, see how, we don't have all the details. We just see how it's being woven together and there's all kinds of knots and it's dirty. And how does this fit? And where is this going? And why is this happening? And you know the great thing about the Bible? God allows us to flip it over and see the top. So we can see my little knotted, dirty, messy life fits in this amazing story. And you will be miserable if you're not in the Word of God doing that. God created everything for His glory. Sin comes into the world. God sends His Son to die for sin. He raises Him from the dead. And He promises that this kingdom is coming forever. And it's already written. It's already in the story. And guess what? He places you right here in the story after the resurrection with His Spirit to tell and witness of the coming kingdom. You're in the story to tell the story. That's the part you play. Even if you're changing trash bags at Lake Reba this week, you're in the story to witness the kingdom. Even in the most mundane things like looking for donkeys, God uses it all for His glory. He uses it all to tell the story from your living room to the checkout line to mountains in Ukraine. He uses it all. And you'll be miserable until you see where you fit in the story. Notice the text continues. Without the Word of God, we would be miserable. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me where the house of the seer is. Notice he still doesn't get it. we, we got to really get that. 
He doesn't know who Samuel is. Samuel's been preaching for a long time, by the way. Got all kinds of podcasts, got his own website. He's preaching repentance, confession, restoration. This would be like Saul walking up to Billy Graham and saying, could you introduce me to Billy Graham? He doesn't get it. He doesn't know who this is. Tell me where the... And notice verse 19, irony. I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. Now, that's significant. And in the morning I will let you go and I will tell you what is on your mind. I will tell you what you're looking for. Because Samuel knows here what is on Saul's mind. Verse 20. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, don't set your mind on them. So, what is on Saul's mind? The donkeys. That's all he cares about is the donkeys. For they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not you and for your father's house? So notice the the amazing shift here. Saul, stop thinking about the donkeys because God's going to give you his house. That's crazy. Searching for donkeys and he's finding the kingdom of God? It's almost like Samuel shaking him. Quit worrying about the donkeys. Now, donkeys in chapter 9 is very important. Donkeys in the Bible are very important. And there's a more biblical name for donkeys that we use. That I'm not going to say because my daughter Anna, she, she's a legalist and a Pharisee, and she said, please don't say that word. But donkeys are stubborn. They're mulish. And the point of the donkeys here is God is the shepherd who finds his donkeys. But he finds them through a donkey named Saul. That's the point. Israel, those are God's donkeys. They wanted a king even though they had God as king. And they've asked for a donkey to be king. Now this was a prized mule. He looked really good. But he's still a donkey. And, and notice the text continues, Saul answered, Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes? He finally gets something right. In, the, in Genesis, the prophecy pointed to someone from the tribe of Judah to come as king. And is not my clan the most humblest of all clans in the tribe of Benjamin? Now, that wasn't some super spiritual statement. In Judges 19, the tribe of Benjamin was involved in division and racial bloodshed. It would be like him saying, my people were involved in KKK, civil rights, mobs. How could I be involved in this? How could I be the king? And he says, why then have you spoken to me in this way? And then Samuel took Saul and his young men and they brought him to the hall. Now notice the picture here. In your mind, picture what's going on. They bring him into the hall, into the fellowship hall. Massive hall. And they gave them a place, notice where? At the head of all who had been invited. And there were 30 people before him. And so Saul is in a place of honor, looking for donkeys, farm boy, country boy, at the head of the table. Verse 23, And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said, put aside. Now Samuel had put this aside for a reason. It was designated for Saul because he had the word of God about Saul and he set it aside for him. 
So the cook took up the leg and, that, that, and what was on it and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, see what is kept. It is set before you. Eat because it was kept for you until the hour appointed. God has appointed you. And you have been set aside like this leg to, 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 for a purpose. And notice that you might eat with the guest. And notice Saul ate with Samuel that day. And that is significant because here Samuel has brought him into his family. And remember, Samuel is acting like the prophet priest. And now all of a sudden, this nobody from Benjamin is sitting at, as a king at the table and he's been adopted into the prophet's family. He's been adopted into the priest's family, even though he's not supposed to be there. This is who the king of Israel would be. He stands before the people of God. He, he, he declares to the people of God God's ways, and he stands before them. And here we have a picture of Saul setting before the people of Israel, before the house of God in this way. Verse 25 when they came down from the high place into the city, the bed was spread and Saul on the, for Saul on the roof, and he laid down to sleep. And then at break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, and he said, Up, that I may send you on your way. And Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. And again, notice verse 27. And as they were going down the outskirts of the street... Now, all of this is supposed to communicate a hiddenness. He's looking for donkeys. He's out in the middle of nowhere. And it's almost like Samuel is keeping this to himself. Only 30 people were at the mill. And now they go outside and it's like Samuel doesn't want to be seen with Saul. There's a secret going on here. There's a mystery going on here. They go down the back alley of the street. And notice as they were going, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us. I don't even want your servant to hear this. And when he passed on, he said, stop here yourself. This is between me and you for a while that I may make known to you the word of God. And notice what God is doing here. He is hiding this work. It's not out in the open. It's not public. It's almost insignificant. But notice the picture we just saw. Saul adopted into God's house. Saul eating at God's table with the priest. He is going to be the king who, is, who, who symbolizes prophet and priest for the people who stands before God. He sees it all. He tastes it all. The food that was to be given to the priest, Saul is eating it. He has been brought into the family of God even though he does not deserve to be there. But notice what he's worried about all along. Donkeys. His identity as Kish's son is what is driving him. I've got to find my father's donkeys. My dad is going to be worried about us. And yet God has spread a table of the kingdom right in front of him. And as we're going to see in chapters later, he rejects that kingdom. He's a bad king. He's not the prophet, priest, king that the people need. They need another king. And the point here is we will continue to have an endless pursuit of donkeys until we allow the kingdom to define us. Notice the kingdom of God, adopted into the kingdom, is right in front of Him. He's only worried about donkeys. And that's how some of you are living your life. You have a king who embraced his identity as God's son. And he suffered and he sacrificed for the most stubborn. And he rescues us and he gives us the kingdom. And you have all of that and yet you're chasing donkeys. You believe today 
that true significance comes in a name and a certain group of friends. Some of you believe that here today. You believe that I'm only going to be somebody if people remember my name in a certain way. And you're living for that. And you're trying to make your mark. When God has said, no, you've been given the kingdom. And in the kingdom, you are a son in the son. That's your mark. Your mark is not about your story. It's about Jesus' story that you fit into. And yet you have that amazing story before you. You have it before you. It's yours. But you say, I want to chase my donkeys. I'm more worried about my don- who I am here. Many of us are fooled into thinking that our only significance, it's defined by our paychecks and our promotions. And you live for that. You should make as much money as you possibly can for the sake of the gospel. And you should be good at your job that people want to give you promotions. But that's not your only significance. And if you think that's your only significance, you will chase that, and you will chase that, and you will chase that, and you will chase that. And what God's going to say at the end is, no, your donkeys were found a long time ago. This, is, this isn't something you even need. This isn't even something that's going to make you happy. It's because your kingdom identity is not fulfilling you. God has given you an eternal kingdom as His inheritance, and you're chasing it. Some of you here today, you... Before Saul, family of God, adopted into it. The gospel is right in front of you. Right in front of you. In Jesus, God will look at you and say, I've loved you like nobody else can love you. Because I love Jesus like I love nobody else. And when you believe in Jesus, I love you the way I love Jesus. And you're chasing approval from somebody else. You just wish that cool guy would look at you and say, you're cool. You just wish your dad would say to you, I'm proud of you. I love you. And you're chasing that. You're longing for it. When the kingdom is right in front of you and God says, I will adopt you into my family and seat you at my table forever. The kingdom is right in front of you. Why do we chase approval, acceptance, pleasure, longing, and so many other things? Because when the kingdom defines us, when the kingdom, when we embrace our role and our identity into the kingdom, a role that Saul here rejects, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you get up and do tomorrow morning. You may get up tomorrow morning and you may go and make copies for eight hours. You may get up tomorrow morning and you may go and weed eat for eight hours. You may get up tomorrow morning and you may greet people at Walmart for eight hours. Or you may get up and you may make million dollar transactions tomorrow. You may be the CEO of a, uh, of a wealthy money making company. Or you may be a supervisor factory. Any of those things. Whoever you are, whatever you do, if the kingdom defines you, you don't need a filter for that. It's not something you can caption or capture. It's your life right in front of you. It's who you are. It's who God created you to be, who has made you to be in the kingdom. So the question is, why are you chasing donkeys? Let's pray.